First uh, Peter chapter 5. When you get there, just hang out in verses 12 through 14. That's what we'll be uh, covering over the next few moments together. As many of you know, Kim and I spent much of 2019 living in other people's houses. Uh, we were renovating our house, and, and we were the beneficiaries of a loving community as families and friends took us in. And, and we learned so much over the course of that year about God's generous grace as these families showed us just incredible generosity by hosting us and, and letting us invade their space for a considerable amount of time. And, and uh, one of the challenges I found when living uh, in a house that's not your home is that there are some restrictions you have to put in place, especially if you have kids. And uh, you have to restrict their volume. Uh, they can't quite be as loud as they might want to. Uh, You have to restrict their energy. They might not be able to just do all the things that they might want to do or they might be used to doing in their own home. And and you also have to kind of restrict their movement. They can't go anywhere they want in the house. And so I doubt if our hosts had come home after a long day of work and they were to move into their bedroom and find uh, my five-year-old son sprawled out on the bed eating cookies and watching Netflix, they probably wouldn't enjoy uh, that. I mean, you just don't have free range parenting when you are staying in another person's house or you're in a house that's not your home. And so over the course of that year, I would often pull pull my kids aside and I would uh, remind them uh, that a day was coming when we'd go to our home. And once we got home, they would be free to be as loud as they want, as energetic as they want. They can move about as they'd like. We were going to go home and they could just be. Because it's kind of what a home is, right? A home is a place where a person can just be. They can be present. They can be themselves. They can just be with their families. Well, as followers of Jesus, we, we currently, in a sense, live in a house that's not our home. And because we are living in a house that is not our home, there's a sense in which we are not fully free to be. The realities of sin, the realities of sickness, the realities of Satan, the realities of death, all of those realities restrict us to some degree as we are journeying through the world that is en route to our true home in the world that is to come. You just consider the the restrictions that have been placed upon us by, by way of the pandemic. You know, we can't go where we want. We can't do exactly what we want. We can't do things how we would like to do them right now. And We can't even hang out with all the people we would like to hang out with. Life is restricted right now because of the pandemic. And so if the pandemic is teaching us anything, it should teach us that we're in a house that isn't our home. If the pandemic teaches us anything, let us think about how this world isn't our home so that we begin to live towards our true home. And we begin to move towards the reality that God is building for us right now as I speak. And in many ways, that's the message of First Peter as we have been journeying through this little book under the series titled Strangers and Exiles, Sinners of a Different Sort. This little letter has been reminding us time and time again that the world is not our home, that we currently live as strangers and exiles. We are moving towards our true home. And it is a liberating reality to know that the world as it stands right now isn't how things will be one day. It frees us up. It fills us with hope. It gives us a sense of courage so that we might endure the difficulties of life in a house that isn't yet our 
home. And so we've been journeying through this little letter, dialing into that reality, reminding ourselves of who we are in relation to our God, who we are in relation to one another, and who we are in relation to the world as it stands right now. Well, today we come to the very end. We come to a powerful little postscript where Peter is wrapping his letter up, and he does so by reminding us of three incredible truths. Three truths that we just want to take in and think through and turn out as we journey towards our true home together. Those three truths may be summarized this way. One is this passage reminds us of the guidance we need as we journey through this world. This passage reminds us of the grace upon which we stand as we are living in the here and now. And this passage reminds us of this, of the greeting that we are anticipating one day. And I'll show you what that means here in a moment. But first, consider the guidance we need. In verse 12, Peter begins by acknowledging a man named Sylvanus. Now, that name might strike you as odd, but that is a variation of another name, Silas. And Sylvanus and Silas is the same person. It's very similar to my own name. I, there's lots of people in my life who refer to me as Andy. They know me as Andy. But I also am known by many of you as Andrew, as Andy is a variation of the name Andrew. Well, that's very much the thing that's going on here. You have Sylvanus, and he's also known as Silas. And if you've read through the book of Acts, you might know who Silas is. Silas was a peer of the Apostle Paul. He traveled around with Paul, making Jesus known to a, bunch of, to a bunch of places. Silas was the guy who joined Paul in prison in Philippi. And, and as they were imprisoned for their faith, Silas was the one who was with Paul as they sang together in that restricted capacity, singing through their sufferings, worshiping Jesus from a prison cell in, in Philippi. Well, that's who this guy is being referred to here. Now, when it says that through Silas, through Sylvanus or Silas, a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, that could be referring to a couple of things. There are some who think that Sylvanus or Silas operated as an amanuensis, which is basically a, a, a person who transcribed someone else's correspondence. And so there are some that think maybe it was Sylvanus's hand that was actually pinning the words that Peter was speaking to him. I think that's a possibility. I don't lean too heavily upon that. I think what's going on here is that Silas is going to serve as a letter carrier. Because the phrase, through Sylvanus, I have written to you, was a common phrase used to describe the act of sending a letter through someone who would deliver it for you on your behalf. This is the exact role that Silas plays in Acts chapter 15, verse 23, where the church in Jerusalem is writing a letter to the church in Antioch to explain to them how they should receive non-Jewish people into their communities. That Jesus was saving people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And as this work was happening, the church was responding to it and trying to get on the same page. And so the council, the church at Jerusalem wrote a letter and Silas was the one who took it to the church in Antioch. Well, he's doing a very similar thing on behalf of Peter in this moment. Now, I really want you to think about how Peter describes him. He describes Silas as a faithful brother. And if you have a pen and you mark in your Bibles and you like to take notes in that way, I would just circle that word faithful because I want us to think about what it means to be considered faithful. What does it mean for you to have a reputation where someone would describe you as faithful? 
What a remarkable description that Peter would refer to him as a faithful brother, someone who could be trusted, someone who could be relied upon. Now, if you're going to write a letter as important as 1 Peter and then give it to somebody to deliver, you want that person to be faithful. You want that to be a trustworthy person. And this is who Silas was for Peter. And so Peter is giving the letter to him with confidence, saying, I can trust this guy to do what he's been asked to do because he's faithful. And man, we should long for that same reputation in our lives, that we would be described as faithful men and women, that we would be described as faithful when it comes to the roles and the responsibilities we carry in the kingdom of God the roles and responsibilities we have as as members of a church, that we would be faithful members to love and to serve the body and to contribute to the building up of the church, that we would be faithful husbands and wives who are completely devoted to our spouses, that we would be faithful in our singleness, trusting Jesus to satisfy our deepest longings and needs. We should be faithful in our parenting so that we are loving our kids in a way that brings them into an awareness of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus. We want to be faithful in all the roles and all the responsibilities that we carry so that it may be said of us at the end of our days, well done, good and faithful servant. You've stewarded your life in a faithful direction. That's what we desire. That's what was true of Silas. And I pray that many people in our church would be described with that same adjective. It reminds me a lot of The Lord of the Rings, where uh, many of you might be familiar with the story. You've probably read the books, seen the movies, and you know uh, the main hobbit Frodo's name. And it's common for many people to think that Frodo is the hero of the story. But the author of the book, J.R.R. Tolkien, he had a different opinion. Tolkien did not believe Frodo was the hero of the story. In his mind, Samwise Gamgee was the hero. And if you know that name, you know that Sam was the hobbit that accompanied Frodo on his journey, that supported him on this difficult task of taking this evil ring to destroy it. And and Sam was with Frodo every step of the way. He stuck by Frodo's side, and Frodo could depend upon him and rely upon him to accomplish the goal that they set out to accomplish. And so according to Tolkien, Samwise was the hero He was the chief hero of the story, recognizing how important faithfulness is to all of our endeavors. And so you have Peter here describing Silas as faithful. But then he goes on and he says, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. And what you find in that next statement is is Paul's purpose statement. You can usually find when you're studying the Bible If you look closely enough, you can find a statement like this in just about every book of the Bible where the authors actually tell us why they've written what they've written. And here Peter says, I've written to first encourage you. I've written to exhort you. I've written to strengthen you. I've written to guide you as you are journeying through the world that is en route to the world that is to come. That if you're going to make it to your true home in the end, these exhortations are needed. That you need to hear what following Jesus looks like. You need to hear about what it means to be someone who's trusting in the gospel and believing in Jesus. And then 
align your life up with the realities of Jesus. And so Peter's been doing this time and time again in this letter, constantly exhorting or encouraging or strengthening strangers and exiles who were living in a house that wasn't their home. And I just want to give you a glimpse of the exhortations that we've received in this letter because these are exhortations that, quite honestly, don't come naturally to us. We need to be exhorted in these directions because this isn't how we want to live left to ourselves. And so listen to the exhortations that Peter has given us in this letter. He says things to us like, be hopeful. He says things like, pursue holiness. He says things like, revere God. He says things like, love one another. He says to submit to human authorities. He says to honor everyone. Every type of person should be a recipient of your honor. He says, I want you to speak well of people. That's an exhortation we need today when you're reading Facebook posts and other social media descriptions and how people are talking to each other. We're not speaking well. And so we need to be exhorted. We need to be guided in a different direction, which is what Peter is doing in this letter, saying, speak well of everyone. He says, be ready to share the gospel. He exhorts us to be alert and sober-minded for prayer so that we can engage in prayer in a disciplined fashion. Then he goes on, rejoice in suffering. Don't be surprised by suffering. Entrust yourself to God. Be subject to elders, pastors, and That is to identify with a local church, be in community with other followers of Jesus where there is identifiable leadership. He goes on to say, be humble. That certainly doesn't come natural to us. If anybody tells us to be humble outside of the church and outside of a gospel understanding, that's going to kind of offend us because we think they're telling us to be in a subservient position that we might not need to be in in relation to them. But But here we're exhorted from God's word, the reality of humility and the beauty of it because we see this virtue in light of Jesus and his humility. We're exhorted to resist the devil, to stand firm. And then at the end of this text, we're told to greet one another. So you have all these exhortations that Peter has been laying out for for strangers and exiles saying you need to know how you are to move through this world. That as you follow Jesus, you are moving through this world differently. You are being guided by God's word. You are being shaped by what God has revealed to us about what it means to be truly human, about what it means to belong to him, about what it means to represent him in the world that is. And so we need God's word to guide us in that direction. And so Peter's purpose statement, when he says, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you, this purpose statement in many ways, it captures and conveys the the purpose statement of the whole Bible. Now, this is why we have the Bible. God exhorting us to put our faith in the Savior. God exhorting us to follow the Savior in particular ways so that we're listening to him and obeying him and walking behind him as we are journeying through the world that is and into the world that is to come. This moment reminds us that we need navigation, that we need help because we're not going to be able to find our way to our true home on our own. I'm reminded of that, op- that episode in the office where Michael Scott and Dwight are going on a sales call and, and they're using GPS for the first time. And so the GPS is navigating them and they, they're hoping to get to where they need to, to be. But, and Michael is, is, is listening to what the GPS is telling them and, 
And the GPS says to turn here. And, and Michael thought that was an immediate command. And Dwight, of course, saw, no, there's a stop sign up there. When you get there, that's where you should turn onto the road, onto the street. But Michael just heard that instruction, said, I'm turning. And he turned immediately only to land his car in a pond, right? A big splash. And they got out and he protested technology from that moment forward, didn't want anything to do with GPS. Well, the good news of God's word is that God's word can be trusted to lead you where you need to be. God's word is not going to guide you into a pond, God's word isn't going to lead you into making a wreck of your life. God's word is going to lead you where he wants you to be. And where he wants you to be is the best place to be. And so we trust God's navigation. We trust God's word to guide us through the world that is and root to the world that is to come. Because apart from it, we're going to wind up, we are not going to find our way to our true home. This is what the psalmist would tell us in Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Saying your word guides me, your word exhorts me, your word encourages me to follow the way of God, to follow the way of Jesus. This is why we study the Bible and we read the scriptures and we learn to live in light of what God has spoken. Because God's word provides us with the guidance that we need. But not only does it encourage us and strengthen us and exhort us, God's word bears witness to what, he descri- what Peter describes as the true grace of God. That God's word bears witness to the grace upon which we stand. He says, I'm writing to testify that this is the true grace of God. And where you circle that word faithful earlier, I would circle that word too, the word testify. That's a powerful word because behind this word is a connotation that says, It speaks of a person who's had a firsthand encounter and a firsthand experience with that which they're talking about. Peter is saying, I'm writing to you about these realities because I've experienced them. I've walked with Jesus. I've listened to Jesus. I've I've been restored by Jesus. And so he's bearing witness to these realities from his firsthand experience. And that's a powerful way to speak. There's a reason why so many people in our church love Cheryl Hartman's monster cookies. Uh, Because once you taste those monster cookies for yourself, you are going to testify to them. You're going to bear witness. You're going to give an account for what you have experienced when you have taken a bite of her cookies. And word is going to get out. Word is going to spread. Well, this is essentially what we do as we follow Jesus, right? We've tasted and seen that Jesus is good. And because we have tasted and seen that he is good, we want to testify to him. We want to bear witness to what we have experienced. We want to bear witness to the freedom our souls feel in having been forgiven by Jesus. We want to bear witness to the freedom we feel for having been liberated by Jesus from other forces in the world that try to hold us back from what God intends for us. So we taste and see that Jesus is good and we bear witness to that. We talk about the grace upon which we stand as we are journeying through this world. But notice what Peter says here. He reminds us. He says this true grace of God is something that you need to stand firm in. It's it's another exhortation. It's another command. Stand firm in grace. As I was thinking about this dynamic, I was reminded of an old school uh, band known as Cademan's Call. And I asked a few friends if they had heard of them earlier today. And a couple of them had. This was a, uh, a band back in the day, kind of a folksy singer-songwriter type of band. And they had an incredible song titled Shifting Sands. 
And it was such a profound song that I didn't understand when I first heard it. But later in life, when I thought back to the words, it struck me in in an incredibly profound way because the lyrics of the song say, my faith is like shifting sands. And so if my faith is like sands that are shifting, what do I stand upon? What am I to build my life upon? And so the lyric would go on, my faith is like shifting sands, so I'm going to stand on grace. And what they're pointing out is the reality that Peter is pointing out here is that as we journey through the world that is, it's imperative that we don't stand upon our faith because our faith is at times fickle. Our faith is at times in one moment really, really strong and vibrant. In another moment, it may be challenged and it may be stretched and we might have a hard time believing God's word and trusting in God's gospel. And in those moments, if our faith is in faith, Everything is going to get shaken up as we're journeying through this world. But what we do as followers of Jesus who've received saving grace and believe the gospel, we don't put our faith in faith because that makes the Christian life all about you and all about me. What we do is we put our faith in God's grace. We stand upon the grace of God and from there we live From there we love, from there we serve, from there we believe. It it is upon the grace of God that we are standing. And all of a sudden, the Christian life becomes less about you and me and our faith and more about God and his grace. And that changes everything. So he says we stand upon, or he's reminding Christians, stand upon the grace of God. If you're depending upon your faith, you may fall out. You may be fickle. If you're depending upon your faith, you're going to interpret the struggles that are surrounding you right now, and you're not going to be able to deal with them because you might think, well, if I believe, why am I suffering? Or if I believe, why am I being tempted? Or if I believe, why am I struggling? And so he's saying, look, no, don't focus on your faith per se. Focus on the grace of God because it is upon his grace, his kindness, his goodness. It's upon all that he has done for us in Christ. That's what we're standing upon. But what is it? What is this true grace that Peter is referring to? And I would talk about it in this moment this way. If we're going to talk about the true grace of God, I think there are three facets we want to keep in mind. Three facets that we want to respond to as we stand upon this grace. First, there's a past grace. There's past grace that refers to everything that God has already done for us in Christ. This is where Peter began his letter. If you turn back a few pages in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter starts out this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of his great mercy, has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's a reference to past grace. Peter is starting his letter reminding Christians of what God has already done that he has had mercy upon us through the resurrection of Jesus. And if you're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, the big implication there is that he was crucified. And so what he's referring to here is past grace, saying, Christian, remember that your relationship with God is not dependent upon what you do and how well you do it. Your relationship with God is dependent upon what God has already done for you in Christ. He's reminding us of the gospel, saying, look, the gospel is about Jesus living the life that you and I could have never lived. It's about Jesus dying a death that you and I deserved to die. 
It's about Jesus Christ being resurrected from the grave, conquering sin, Satan, and death so that sinners and sufferers like you and me might be forgiven, might taste mercy, might be born again to a living hope. Past grace is about what God has already done. And so we stand on that. We remember that when we're struggling in a given moment. We remember that when we are having a hard time. But not only does this talk about past grace, there's also a reality of present grace. There's past grace, what God has already done, but then there's present grace and that what God is currently doing in this very moment. You keep reading in chapter one and Peter kind of turns the corner and he goes in that direction. You look at verse five. Peter says, you are being guarded. You are being guarded right now by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's speaking there of present grace, a present grace that is accompanying us right now in this very moment. A present grace that recognizes that who we are in Christ because of what God has done and what we are struggling with in a given moment, those are not incompatible. Your sufferings do not determine your location in relation to Christ. And so who we are in Christ and what we may be enduring in a given moment, those two things are not incompatible. Instead, Peter's reminding us that God's present grace is working in and through everything that we are experiencing. Working in and through every moment of every day to work out God's plans and God's purposes for our betterment, for our eternal flourishing. This is a lot like baking monster cookies. If you were to bake Cheryl's monster cookies, you're going to see several ingredients. You're going to pull out all of those ingredients and you're going to lay them out on a counter. Now, some of those ingredients are tasty and you might want to eat individually. So chocolate chips or M&Ms, you're going to pop those in without touching them or adjusting them in any way. But there are other ingredients on the counter that you're not going to eat individually. You're not going to take a spoonful of baking soda and shove it into your mouth. You're not going to take flour and just start consuming it straight up. That's not how it works. But to get a monster cookie, what do you need? You need the chocolate chips. You need the M&Ms. You need the baking soda. You need the flour. You need the tasty ingredients. And you need the ingredients that left to themselves are really hard to swallow. But a good chef like Cheryl, she can take the good she can take all of those ingredients and work them together to present a monster cookie to be, to be enjoyed. And this is essentially what God's present grace is all about. It's God working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's God using the good moments of life and the tough moments of life and weaving them together to tell a story that displays the beauty of his grace. That's present grace that God is working right now, even in the midst of a pandemic, right now, even in the midst of many struggles that people have as we are processing all that's going on. And God's just taking every single ingredient that's dropped into our lives and he's going to produce something incredibly tasty. 
He's going to produce something very, very good. But not only is it present grace in this moment, Peter's also, there's a reference there at the end of verse 7 to what might be described as future grace. So if you're going to talk about true grace, you're talking about past, present, and future. You're talking about God's free kindness, his free goodness, God treating us better than we deserve because of what Jesus has done, because of how he's committed to us even now, and because of what he will do one day in the future. Because there's a reference there at the end of verse 7 to the revelation of Jesus, which is shorthand for the day Christ returns. The day Christ makes all things new and he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, that future grace that we are living towards when we are brought into our true home. Now, when you think about future grace, here's what I want us to think about. I want us to think about now the the greeting that we're all anticipating. This future grace that takes the form of a greeting that we're all anticipating. And this is what I want to show you. If you look back at chapter 5, if you look at verses 13 through 14, there's a series of greetings. Peter ends the letter by exhorting the church with greetings that are being given to the church. And then Peter's also telling the church to be greeting one another. He starts off by referring to she who is in Babylon, chosen together. Now, this reference to she being in Babylon, I believe that's a reference to the church. It's a reference to the Christians who are with Peter in Babylon. Babylon was code for Rome back in the day. That's how Christians would sometimes refer to Rome and the Roman Empire. And, and this kind of runs parallel to how Peter began his letter earlier in chapter 1. He, he referred to those who were chosen, living as exiles, dispersed throughout Uh, He was writing to Asia Minor, but the whole Roman Empire, Christians being dispersed. This is a phrase that reminds Christians that this world is not their home. It reminded them that they're living in a house that isn't home yet. And as we think about those words today, we're reminded we're in a house that isn't our home yet. And so Peter draws a connection between the church and the people of Israel because Babylon was the place where Israel was brought to after the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and they were dispersed throughout the ancient world. Well, they were brought to Babylon, the capital of their oppressors. Well, Peter in the early church was experiencing a similar thing. Peter most likely had to flee to Rome after persecution broke out in Jerusalem and eventually Peter was taken and eventually Peter was was killed for his faith. He became a martyr and he probably spent his last days in Jerusalem. Rome, which would have been the capital of his oppressors, which was another connection with the Old Testament. So he refers to Babylon here, but then he goes on to refer to another person who sends greetings. Chosen together with you sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. And this isn't a literal son. Uh, This was a reference to Mark, a guy that Peter discipled. And Peter referred to him as his son. He was his spiritual son. Mark is the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark relays Peter's experiences with Jesus. There's a lot about Peter in that Gospel because Mark is writing what he learned from the Apostle Peter. So you have the Gospel of Mark, Mark being the son of Peter, and that's, it's fun how the Bible is connected in all these kinds of ways. But then we go on. And so you have son in the faith. I want you to think about that familial reference. You're beginning to hear a little bit of family language where Mark's being referred to as a son. But then he goes on and he says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, this is an exhortation that we're not following literally, right? Uh, There are some culturally bound exhortations, and the holy kiss language is perhaps one of those culturally bound exhortations. In a pandemic, we're definitely not necessarily following this one to the T. 
But he says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, what's remarkable about this is that this idea of greeting another person with a kiss, that wasn't language that was used customarily in the synagogue where the first Christians came from. Most first Christians were Jewish people who at one point worshiped regularly in the synagogue before they came to know that Jesus was the Messiah, the fulfillment of all those dynamics. And so they didn't learn to greet each other with a holy kiss from the synagogue. Now, when you study the Greco-Roman world and the culture, this is language that was used exclusively for the home. This was exchanges that was given between loved ones, family members, and dear, dear friends. Peter is taking that greeting and he's applying it to the church, reminding us that, yes, we are strangers and exiles moving through the world that is and root to the world that is to come, but we're not moving by ourselves that Jesus has brought us into a new family where we greet one another, where we love one another, where we embrace one another. And you think about what a greeting does. A greeting does at least three things. A greeting will express awareness. When someone greets you, that they are expressing awareness, saying you were seen. But then a greeting also, it not only expresses awareness, it expresses acceptance. When you greet someone, you are telling another person you belong here. But then there's another dynamic. When you greet a person, not only are you saying, I see you and you belong here, you're also expressing affirmation. An affirmation that says you're going to be cared for. When we greet one another in this way, we are expressing awareness. We are expressing acceptance and affection. And this is a powerful dynamic because our need and desire to be greeted in such a way is one of the earliest expressions, one of the earliest things we express upon our entrance into this world. There was a German pediatrician named Ernst Murrow who observed back in 1918 how babies, right after they pop out of their mothers, they move their hands in this clasping kind of way. And if you've ever been in a delivering room and you've seen a newborn baby, you've seen this gesture a lot. And Moro, this pediatrician, observed this, this, what came to be known as the Moro clutch, where these newborn infants were expressing their desire to be greeted in the world. A desire to be seen, a desire to be accepted, a desire to be affirmed. And so they would just gesture that over and over and over again. And Moro would coin that, the Moro clutch. And I believe that people spend much of their lives in a sustained Moro clutch that people all around us are living their lives grasping for acknowledgement, grasping for acceptance, grasping for affirmation. People want to be seen. People want to belong. People want to be cared for. And Peter is saying, your desire to be greeted should be met in the church. That we are the place and the people who greets one another and we greet everyone we come in contact with so that people are seen, people are accepted, and people are cared for. This is the culture that Peter is building up in the church in the first century. This is the culture that you and I are called to cultivate here in the city of Seattle. That where we are greeting one another in a way that says, I see you, that says, you belong here. And it says you'll be cared for. But I want us to think one step further about this dynamic as we try to cultivate this culture of greeting together. 
Why do you think Peter is telling the church to be this way? Is because Peter understands that there's coming a day when we ourselves are greeted by God in heaven. And so what Peter is doing, he's saying, look, church, you are to give people in this world tastes of heaven. You are to show people right now what life is going to be like when all is said and done. So greet one another now in a way that God is going to greet you then. Because there's coming a day at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he returns and he says to all of his people forever and always, I see you. He says to all of his people forever and always, you belong here. He's saying to all of his people forever and always, you will be cared for. The greetings that Peter is mentioning here speak to a deeper greeting that we are anticipating. The day when Christ returns and he greets us fully and finally forever. There's a picture of this in Revelation chapter 21 where John is given, Peter's best friend John is given a glimpse of that day when God greets us in heaven and listen to how he describes it. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Those things will be no more because we will find ourselves in our true home. And so we greet one another today in anticipation of the greeting we're going to receive when we arrive at our true home. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace? Would you give us grace as we wrap up our study of 1 Peter to embrace the fact that we are strangers and exiles, to embrace the fact that the world as it is now is a house, but it's not a home. God, would you give us grace to live towards our true home? Father, however long or however short our days in this world may be, let us live towards that reality. I pray that your word would continue to guide us. I pray that we would continue to stand upon your grace. And I pray that we would greet one another, love one another, accept one another, affirm one another in ways that anticipates the day we're with you fully and finally. God, we look forward to our true home with you and, and we pray that your grace would sustain us in the here and now as we move towards that reality in Jesus' name, amen.